Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be your host. And today my guest is Dr. Brian Nixon. If you've heard some of our other podcasts, then you know we've been tackling some really interesting questions, and I'm sure today is not going to be any exception to that. Now, Brian's insistence on tea being the superior drink has mm-hmm. caused me to actually, rather than bringing water in, I've brought some tea in. And Luke, I just want to commend you on such <laughs> a noble and virtuous act that you did bringing tea into this room because we know tea's the drink for gentlemen. <laughs> well, I don't know why I'm drinking it then. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we're going to go ahead and get started and we're going to do something a little bit different today. I've actually given Brian the the die and he's going to roll it for us just in case, you know, I was waiting the die and getting yeah, incorrect results. Those, those fours all the time. I'm, yeah. I'm admiring the die right now. You know, this is the blue one ah. and uh, I'm looking at all the numbers and I'm thinking, boy, this is a nice die. I can't wait to roll it. So here I go. You ready for this? Let's and do it. I, I'm going to tell us the number. And if it's four, <laughs> then we know something's wrong with your die. Here we go. It is six. Okay. It is number I was, six. I was biting my fingernails there for a second. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to go find another die. You already heard that story. <laughs> oh, boy. These questions are really, really excellent. But number six says, is the Bible for or against polygamy? Mm. Let me give just a quick answer. And then we're going to have to back into this. Norm, that's normally how we do it. We kind of give right. the, you know, either a quick answer or, or start big and then then hone down. But I'm going to start small. The Bible is against polygamy, particularly the New Testament. Um, the New Testament is quite clear that uh, husband and wife relationship is the normative. So... We would have to say the totality of the scriptural teachings from Genesis to Revelation that marriage was to be between one man and one woman. Let's use the prototype, the archetype of Adam and Eve. Now, we could say, well, there wasn't other you know, men or women, so you, there couldn't be polygamy. But that is the prototype. That's the archetype of, of you know, what sets the stage of what we'd call God's standard. But as we've talked about a couple of times, Luke, on the program, since the fall, human beings have just kept going off the path, going off the path, doing their own thing. You know, the road is straight, but they're just wandering, wandering, and wandering. (laughs) So true. And then, sooner or later, someone said, you know, one gal's not good for me, so I'm going to get two. And by the way, I'm a king, or I'm a prince, or I'm a chieftain. I'm someone really important, and therefore, we're going to expand. And they did. And polygamy entered in, particularly the Israeli or the Jewish history, through what we would ultimately say wayward actions, a misunderstanding Mm. or a, a moving off the initial plan and purposes for God. So we know it comes to a head with someone like David, who... Right. obviously had many wives, and then more so his son, Solomon, and so on and so forth. But you could make a good case, though it's not explicitly said, when the Lord is judging the kings and judging Judah and Israel, that there were a lot of things going on, but not only just intermarriage between you know 
the Hebraic people and non-Hebraic people, so the, the pollution right. of, of, of worldviews and religious outlook. But you could also put in that that their lifestyles, these these you know polygamous lifestyles, were were also God saying, "Hey, folks, this is not what I intended. Come on, let's try to get back." And then, as we pointed out enough, his last radio program or two radio programs ago, it's one of the reasons why Christ came. You know, He came to establish and say, "Hey, guys, not only am I the Messiah, not only am I, you know, God in human flesh, but." Here's the road we're to walk on. I am the way, the mm. road. I am the truth. I am the life. Get back on this road. Let's get walking again. Let's get back to God's original purposes. And so he's calling Israel. He's calling later on, you know, through the apostles, um, non-Jewish people to, to get back on this road. So that's why clearly in the New Testament, we get uh, a a very declarative call for one man, one woman. You shall leave your family and be married to one person. And that's been the normative. Now, as we know, Luke, throughout probably the last 10 years, that that is changing a little bit. It's becoming through media, mm -hmm. normalized. You know, they, they had for a while that one Mormon couple that he had many wives and so on and so forth. And they were trying to normalize a polygamist. We know in some cultures, polygamy particularly in Islamic cultures, polygamy is right. still acceptable. And so there's there's a, a, an attempt to normalize polygamy. Um, let me pause for a second. I'll push the pause button. I have two things to say. First of all, I attended um, several years ago now. I mean, it's been several years, maybe 20 years ago. A conference, or it was like a little seminar, more or less, where they were interviewing the great Berkeley lawyer, Philip Johnson. Mm. He wrote the, the, the real, I mean, the book that blew up um, kind of the intelligent design yeah. thing, he, you know, Darwin on trial. As a lawyer, he weighed Darwin ideology from the standpoint of a court case. And his conclusion was that what we know as macroevolution wouldn't stand in, in a court of law. Therefore, we really must be suspect of it. Well, that book really put him on cultural think tank. So he was invited by other cultural thinkers to brainstorm issues and both moral and ethical issues that America may be facing. Mm. And you have to understand, this is, this is maybe 2020, you know, when, when, when I, I, I went to this little seminar. And Philip Johnson said, well, well guess what's on our agenda? And everyone, of course, oh, well, of course, we know that you guys are addressing homosexuality. He goes, oh, no, they addressed that in the 70s. And everyone's like, what? And then they, they brought up, you know, another thing. Well, of course, you, you know, you're talking about abortion. And they go, no, you can, Roe versus Wade. You know, that, that was addressed a long time ago. And so everyone goes, okay, what, what, are, your, what are your big agenda items? What are, you, what are the ethicists and great thinkers, this think tank, addressing? He goes, well, the things we're addressing are is when you change the definition of marriage, which mm. they have for homosexuality, right. he says the ramifications of changing definition is you have to change it for everyone because what, what kind of parameters are, mm. are you you're saying? So he said, we have just spent our time talking about that when uh, polygamy comes up as a legal issue, 
how are we going to handle it? Because we've changed the definition for marriage, you know, between a man and a woman. Now it could be a host of things. He said, so polygamy is one of the issues we're addressing. He goes, but that wasn't the only one. He goes, you know, we're also addressing pedophilia. Yep. And he said, um, we're also uh, uh, addressing um, non-life marriages. You know, a guy who wants to marry his robot or a guy who wants to marry his computer and right. what, what kind of what kind of ethical or moral value should we we give to non-living things? And everyone's jaw was just like, what? What do you mean you're, you're already addressing this? And again, this was 20 years ago. And so, you know, he said, oh, just wait. You know, just wait, you know, because once you change the definition and they basically started to change the definition in the 70s for, for the most part of marriage, you know, the acceptance of of not just one man and one woman, but the acceptance or changing, you know, it could be one woman, one woman, one man, one man. But once you change that definition, you, then it really rattles the cage. Right. So he was saying, you guys just wait. You know, you're going to have to be dealing with these issues. And lo and behold, here we are 20 years later. Philip Johnson is now, he's, he's with the Lord. But um, we're, here we are talking about it, and we see it creeping in. So that's one thing. The other thing I want to say, and anyone who's taken Sociology 101 knows this. Generally speaking, how ideas, ideology, worldviews, major cultural shifts enter into the common denominator of our world in today's world, it's still very similar to how it entered in, let's say, 40 years ago. And what it, what it starts up, think of a triangle that's standing upright. You have the point at the top and then you have the base at the bottom. Up at the top of that point are what you would call your thinkers, your world changers. And that could be people who are your philosophers. They're your, you know, the, the, the wealthy who could, you know, pay other people to think and so on and so forth. But they, they develop ideas or they develop new concepts or, or, or new, new, you know, paradigms. And those paradigms are then tested and evaluated and such by the next step on that triangle, which would be academia. In academia, you know, wrestle with it and they deal with it. They, you know, debate the pros and cons. And, and if it's, you know, a pet project of theirs, they, they champion it. But then where does it go from there? So it starts with this cultural elite, you know, usually brilliant minds or even wayward minds. And then it moves to the academia. Well, in order to get an idea out to other folks, it usually begins with the media. And so the media then takes that idea and starts to promote it, starts to normalize things. And of course, today, the media is, we talked about this recently, right. just how social media, there's so many outlets, but it, it, it propagates that ideology throughout the media. And that media then goes to the government, picks up on it. And then the masses. So this triangle starts with this elite, goes to the academia, goes to the media and government. And then getting close to the base of the triangle is the mass population. 30 years ago, most people would have said homosexuality is not compatible. Today, I dare say probably a lot of people would say, oh, it's totally fine. Because that's the work of the media and other things um, changing how we view things. And then at the bottom of that triangle is the church. Church is usually one of the last 
because it's full of tradition. It has rules and regulations. And so, you know, when things start penetrating the church, that top of the triangle did their job. And so what we find is that polygamy has started to be promoted through the media. And because the a cultural elite, such as a Philip Johnson, though he wasn't for polygamy, he was saying this is something you, the future generations are going to have to contend with. And he's right, you know, and he said, you'll start seeing the media, um, we'll start picking up on it, and they'll try to normalize it, and so on yeah. and so forth. It's just part of the progress. So all of that said, I know that was a long answer to say one of the reasons why we're seeing more and hearing more about polygamy is because, A, that's what happens when you change the definition of marriage. It opens the door for a lot of other expressions to normalize it. And then you have outlets such as media, and that includes social media, television, and so on and so forth. And and let me just give you an example from a, a, a different um, population. Let's let's call it the LBGTQ um, population. As you and I know, Luke, we're the same age, roughly. Twenty five years ago, you would have never seen any male female kiss on television. You would have never seen. I mean, excuse me, male male kiss, female female right. kiss. You would you wouldn't have seen that. It was taboo. Now it's normative. If a TV show doesn't have you know the gay character or address these issues, then that TV show has no legs because they right. want it. You know, it's part of the, what we, you know, the cultural propaganda that's, that's promoted. And though we're not quite yet there with a polygamy, you could see the beginnings of it. Again, that reality show of that one guy and what he have, seven wives or six wives, or he's a Mormon guy. And I, I dare say you would probably see some other cultural um, type scenarios. So, that's what I think we need to be on lookout. The other thing I think, you know, we need to say is we don't, as Christians, as Christians who take seriously, you know, Scripture, we don't have to buy into that. I think our job is to continue to to proclaim truth. At times we win, you know, the the cultural argument. Other times we don't. But I I do dare say that this this is one of the the, the cultural things that that is is coming upon us. And then one final thing, and then I promise, Luke, to, to let you weigh in. <laughs> I know I'm taking up most of the program here. Here's one, no of, here's one of my big issues with this or, or be it uh, a trans, transgenderism or a lot of other things. And again, I'm, I don't want to mix up different things. But they're different issues. But I really think what we've opened the door with these type of actions, cultural actions, is we're endangering the two most vulnerable populations in our society. We're endangering women and we're endangering children. By allowing one guy have multiple wives, there is a type of endangerment um, that can happen. And I know they try to sugarcoat it and they try to make right. it look like everyone's happy and everyone's lovey-dovey and so on and so forth. But I do think there has the potential the potential for endangerment of, of females, be it through coercion, be it through getting a girl who's way too young to make any kind of, you know, cognitive decision of, of positivity towards joining a, a group of six other wives and so on and so forth. So I, I, I think we need to protect women. And the same thing is with children. It would be 
very, very fascinating to do some sociological, cultural studies on on children from these these groups and and how they correspond and connect with reality and and such. So, I just think there's some red flags in our culture allowing a lot of these things. Um, the same thing could be true of, if I, as I said, transgenderism, you know, putting two ladies, quote unquote, ladies, woman who is by DNA, a female by genetics and in a ring with a quote unquote woman who is genetically a man can be dangerous for that woman. Right. You know, she could be killed, you know, with, because the strength, the body and everything else. So there's a lot of ethical issues that we have to think through in these issues, but I've said enough. Your time to weigh in, Luke. <laughs> no worries. It was all great, great information, Brian. I definitely appreciate that. I wanted to address this side of things because I think it may not be addressed enough in the normal debate. Like you've given absolutely solid biblical and even cultural items and the moral side of things. Like, I find that there are a lot of these types of questions that the church is having to wrestle with now, particularly about sexual behaviors and where they fall in line with the biblical pattern. You know, the biblical pattern hasn't changed, but somehow or another, many of the younger and maybe some of the not so young have begun to look at the traditional view or what they call the Christian traditional sexual ethic as being only that, just a tradition. Mm -hmm. And there's some moral equivocation that's happening to say, well, you know, the, the fallacy of the undistributed middle term, right? All cows eat grass, Bessie eats grass, Bessie is a cow. Well, no, that's not how that works. Mm -hmm. Well, Christian sexual ethic is a moral tradition. Homosexual sexual ethic is a tradition. Therefore, these traditions have no ability to be differentiated. If it's only a tradition, then you have no moral standing beyond that. Even if it's a moral tradition, you have no ability to assert one over the other. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of where the culture is drifting to, and it's presenting all of these different things. There's a huge thing happening in schools right now for minor attracted teachers, which is nothing other than pederasty mm -hmm. or pedophilia. Mm -hmm. And you have the same type of war being engaged in. I'm not going to say which side's winning or losing, but there's definitely a propaganda, as you mentioned, that's pushing toward this definition. Now, how that applies to this, you know, what does the Bible have to say, or is it for or against polygamy? We've answered that right up front. The Bible is against polygamy, but I feel like there's an underlying question there where people can be told that about a lot of things, right? The Bible's against this, 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 and this. But the Bible, of course, as we know, is already for a monogamous relationship. Mm -hmm. There is something in the mix, in the milieu, that people are frustrated about, and they don't understand why that has to be the right way. They may know all the rules about thou shalt not, but they want to know why those rules are there, right? Why not this when this person over here says it's so enjoyable? Mm -hmm. This person over here says it's so fulfilling. This person over there says, you know, it's what they always wanted kind of thing. 
And you you brought up an important point about the the literature, and I don't have the studies because, as you know, we don't prep for this. Mm-hmm. But I have heard multiple studies referenced. I'm sure you have as well. Um, that deal with the psychology in these non-traditional relationships. So, like, even if we maintain the traditional word in same-sex relationships, homosexual relationships, the domestic abuse is literally through the roof. We're talking on the order of two to three times mm-hmm. what the domestic abuse is in a heterosexual relationship, even if there's not necessarily a marriage. Now, interestingly enough, the marital stats actually bring the numbers down even further. So even in a, a heterosexual relationship, a non-married couple and the children that are born from that union have a far greater propensity toward domestic violence mm-hmm. and toward child abuse as um, as the statistics go, where, you know, a, a, a gal or a guy has existing children, brings in another partner, there's a much higher mm-hmm. incidence of in a non-married situation where there's no need for, you know, a public social commitment where those children can suffer from a number of different things. So psychologically, uh, I've seen myself, and again, I do not remember the references to the studies, but the psychological health and well-being of the children Mm -hmm. that are involved in these relationships, it's better off than in in a monogamous two-parent family than any other configuration. So it's it's better to have two parents that don't do that great of a job Mm -hmm. than to have one parent or to have two people in the home in a non-heterosexual relationship and non-married relationship, like the monogamous structure. And so if our psychological literature and our sociological literature are establishing that, Mm -hmm. for me, that sort of deals with that underlying question. It's like, God's not just telling us to not do things because he just said so. Even though he has absolutely the divine right to say that, we have no right to question it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. We still have brains that question things. So even in our human cultural experience, if Mm -hmm. people are willing to look at these alternative configurations, they're going to find that the the psychological and sociological literature establishes the norms that the Bible Mm -hmm. commands. Because God knows best how we tick. And even though we like a lot of things, many of the things that we think we like are destructive to us, even if we enjoy what's happening while we are being destroyed. Right, right. And, I mean, Romans 1's the perfect example Mm -hmm. of that, who knowing the judgment of God upon such things, not only do them, but have pleasure in them that do. They were lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We have the capacity to love and enjoy and prioritize things that are bad for us. And that, that itself should not be a surprising truth Mm -hmm. because every single human being has at some point dealt with that. Now, polygamy as a construct, of course, is inferior to what God said is better. And, you know, some people try to use the Bible, as you know, Brian, to say, well, you know, so-and-so did it, or, you know, Abraham or Jacob. It's like, let's go take a look at that family. Mm -hmm. How did that work out? Yeah. And I think you pointed out about the dangers as well. I think it's very clear that when you introduce competition— particularly when it comes to the most basic drivers, like starve somebody and then stand someone in front of them and food, right? What's going to happen to that person who tries to keep them from getting to food? Do the same thing with sexual behavior, right? right? You're going to create 
a monster is what you're going to do. And so there's, there's these dynamics where the Bible says, don't start being attracted or don't allow your heart to be gravitating. This is one of the things that he warned Solomon about. Mm -hmm. He's like, don't gravitate toward this stuff because it's going to create a major problem right, for you. Right. Interestingly enough on that, and that was great, Luke, very, very good. Uh, back to the Bible, you know, so yeah. so the norm, the normative we know was in, in Genesis, you know, a man shall leave his husband and wife and join together and they shall become one flesh. So the normative. Well, by Genesis 4, I think it was Lamech yeah, who married, exactly. who married, the two. first polygamous marriage was, was Lamech in Genesis 2. But then we fast forward to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17, 17, and the Lord says, and he, meaning kings, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So the Lord, for whatever reason, allowed it. And we know we, it's called the human nature, sin nature. Right. They did it. They were getting off that road as I started. And the Lord, as early as Deuteronomy says, hey, don't multiply wives because your heart's going to be turned away. So, you know, even there, there was that. But then, of course, Solomon and David were classic examples. Right. Who who may have had their their heart after the Lord, but their lives were a mess because they were doing things that the Lord says, "Hey, don't do that." And on on that point, this is the very vehicle. I mean, God obviously knew what He's talking about because He's God, but it is through the multiplication of wives into the Israelite court that brought israel into idolatrous right. bondage that's exactly right by that time by the time solomon came around and who knows what was happening at the end of david's life as well his family was sort of out of control and he wasn't really too engaged with a lot of the things that were happening but solomon's there building groves to false gods in israel to the gods that his wives serve now we could say well this is happening like you mentioned with the exceptionalism at the beginning this is happening because he's trying to build strong alliances between himself and all of the other places so Israel can stay at peace. Mm -hmm. It's like that's not a good enough reason. Human beings have a terrible penchant, we all do, of justifying behavior that mm -hmm. we know is mm -hmm. not good behavior. Unquestionably. And, you know, for practical reasons, right? It's like if that was a theocracy, then he was supposed to be trusting in God to do right the preservation of Israel, not in the alliances that he could form with wicked kings and their families, right. even right. though that became a pattern of other kings. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's such a huge topic. I know we're out of time, um, but it's one of those topics that so much could be said. And, you know, and just to summarize again, the normative was set. God said, this is what I want. A man shall leave his wife and they shall become one flesh. Israel particularly through Lamech and then the kings and everything, David and Solomon being the epitome of it. Right. But then Jesus Christ came back to establish the norm, what God's will was for his people. And that's why in the New Testament, you find clearly one man and one wife. But that is a great question. Absolutely. And Brian, definitely appreciate the input. We appreciate each of you who are listening, and we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to speak to the questions that you've supplied us with. If you have additional questions, by all means, write us. We love to hear and answer your questions here as we squawk, because you've squawked at us. We're going to squawk back. And our email is calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Again, that's calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Once again, God bless you, and thank you for listening.